The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Uh, so today's sermon is, is basically going to cover Exodus 35 through 39. You can have your Bibles open. You can kind of flip back and forth as you please. But the scripture reading for right now uh, that I'm going <clears> to <throat> read for you is, is starting in... Um, verse 4 of chapter 35, and I'm going to read through 36, verse 7, and then I'm going to skip and read the end of chapter 39. So you can stay seated. It is a longer reading, but um, yeah, let's be attentive as we hear God's very words to us. Exodus 35, starting in verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is a thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tents and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand. The hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, and the pegs of the court and their cords. The finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, 
See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. To devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do, to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave the command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Now flipping over to chapter 39, starting in verse 32. <clears throat> Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. So we thank you, God, for these inspired words, and we ask for your Holy Spirit's help in understanding them this morning. We ask that you would apply them to our lives. We ask that we would leave here this morning changed and that you would get the glory. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so since we're nearing the end of the book of Exodus, I thought it would be good for us to sort of reorient ourselves so that we can start to tie it all together. We've been calling this series The God Who Saves, The God Who Speaks, the God who stays, and we desperately need a God who does all three of those things. 
And that's exactly how God has presented himself, not only here in Exodus, but really in the whole Bible. So in chapters 1 through 17, we saw God saving a people out of slavery in Egypt, working great wonders in their deliverance, so as to put to shame the most powerful empire of that age, along with its pantheon of fake yet demonic gods. And by saving Israel through those plagues, through the Passover, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, God fulfills his promises to the patriarchs and makes known his glory throughout the world. And we drew the connection to how God saves his new covenant people, us, through the blood of the Passover lamb, in our unification with him, not in the Red Sea, but through the waters of baptism and all that that represents. And how he is saving us through this wilderness life and delivering us out of this world to our true homeland as justice is poured down on his enemies who have oppressed his people. Well, the second section of the book of Exodus is the God who speaks. In chapters 18 through 24, we learned about how God revealed himself, how he gave good laws, how he called the people into covenant on Mount Sinai. And the laws given there started with the Ten Commandments, of course, but we saw that those, in some sense, are kind of like topic headings for groupings of further laws that more specifically revealed God's character to his people. And we saw how Jesus didn't come to abolish this law, but to fulfill it. Now, some of the more ceremonial, ritualistic laws Jesus fulfilled by living out what they were always intended to point to. But certainly the ethical laws haven't changed at all in their applicability to our lives today. The biggest thing that's changed with Christ and the new covenant is that now we have the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So these laws are never requirements that we meet in order to secure God's favor. Rather, after we have God's favor through faith in Christ, we are given the means to live out the law and we truly walk with Christ as, as we do with the Holy Spirit. We find that this law is being worked out in us more and more all the time. Chapters 24 through 40 then close out the book with a focus on the God who stays. He doesn't just rescue us and tell us stuff and then take off. He makes his dwelling among us. And without that peace, I mean, what would salvation really accomplish? What would, what would be the benefit of, of hearing him at all? But he intends to stay. And that's, that's the bookends to the whole Bible. He's bringing us back to the garden, back to a situation where heaven and earth are connected. Now, in the book of Exodus, it's just the second book of the Bible, so of course we're not back in the presence of God just yet. We're not back to the garden but instead, this incredibly intricate placeholder zone is commissioned by God, the tabernacle. And this tent structure is a place. It's like a mobile Mount Zion, sorry, Mount Sinai. Um, it's, it's a place just like what they'd seen on the mountain where, where God is coming down and among them. Well, now they're taking that on the road as they travel to the promised land. And the throne room of God extends as if through a portal into this cube-shaped room in the tabernacle called the most holy place. And so in that way, the very presence of God would stay with the people all through their wilderness wanderings to the place of their inheritance. And that has everything to do with us today. Because we've seen that the tabernacle was then later translated into 
the concept of Israel's temple. And we know that temple, the temple was fulfilled in Jesus himself. And now he says that his people, those who are found in Jesus by faith, are now a temple of the Holy Spirit and are together being built up into a spiritual house. So asking how the tabernacle works and what does it all mean, that helps us to think about what, what does, how does the church work and what does that all mean? What kind of dwelling are we making for God? And how are we going about that? What does it all represent beyond just this temporary, crude form that we see here today? So that's what we'll be thinking about more in these chapters before us. And specifically, we're going to learn from the construction of the tabernacle that God's spirit uses the free gifts of God's people to shape a new creation. God uses the free gifts of God's people to shape a new creation. And we'll work through that backwards. So first realizing that it's a new creation that's being formed through what we're doing here. And then realizing that it's through our free gifts. Our free gifts are being utilized to make that happen. And finally, in front of us and behind it all, we'll see that God is the one shaping what we're building. But before we get into any of that detail, it's, it's kind of worth asking, what's with all the repetition? Right? Even as I was reading the scripture reading, you're like, is he really going to read all of that again? All those details, all those materials. Um, there is a lot of repetition within these chapters. But not only within these chapters. Because if you remember three or four weeks ago, we were looking at the earlier description of the same articles that, were being, that needed to be built for the tabernacle as God was showing that to Moses for the first time, giving him the charge to build these things. Well, then there was the interruption of the golden calf incident in chapters 32 through 34. Uh, But now we're getting back to, we're back on track and we're going to complete the work. So why can't we just read in these later chapters, and it was all completed according to the original instructions? (laughs) That would be easy, right? But instead, if you look at these chapters, and we didn't even read most of it out loud, right? Most of 36, all of 37, 38, the first part of 39. If you look at those chapters, you'll see the details about the tabernacle structure and each piece of furniture repeated almost exactly from chapters 25 to 28. Why? Well, a principle to remember is that biblical repetition highlights biblical priorities. Biblical repetition highlights biblical priorities. So the way that this text plays out, restating everything in great detail, it might feel archaic to us or kind of pedantic, but what it's doing is it's forcing us to slow down and to see the magnitude of what's happening and all that that would have meant to the original people who were involved. Can you imagine what this must have been like for the ancient people of Israel? The God who had revealed himself in power, power over kings, over armies, over nature himself, nature itself, that God is, is the one whose presence is now going to dwell among them. The same presence that appeared like fire and smoke, like a kiln on the mountain, somehow that's going to be housed in their midst. Now he promises to stay with them. Even after they they violated covenant with him, he's returning to covenant and he's said, yes, I'm really going to do this. I'm going to make you a holy nation. I'm going to make you distinct in this world. I'm going to be in your midst to fulfill the promises to Abraham that will bring renewal to all peoples. So this is a reminder that what they were building and what we're building in our service to God 
is ultimately much more than what it seems. It is part of a new creation. It wasn't just a tent in the wilderness. It was a prototype for the renewal of all things. And the same is true for this community and what we're about this morning and what we're about throughout every week. Do we need to remember that this morning? That the, the repeated, the seemingly pedantic ingredients to what we do or that, that our efforts that we take each week in our local church setting, that's actually how the entire cosmos is being changed. Like if we could really get our minds around that, what he's building in us and through us together, and how it's going to last far beyond any of our natural lifetimes and extend into the world to come, if we could really get our minds around that, then I don't think we would be tiredly dragging ourselves in here or sighing when life group is hard or wincing when we drop that gift in the box. No, we would be stunned that we get to be a part of it at all. The way that this text points us to the concept of new creation, it, it starts in chapter 35, verses 1 through 3. I didn't read those verses, but just before the tabernacle is completed in these chapters, we have this, this brief reminder of Sabbath regulations. It says, Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of a solemn rest holy to the Lord. And we need to ask what's going on here because a reminder of Sabbath was given also in chapter 31, just after the plans for the tabernacle were first laid out. So why do we have Sabbath? Um, Sabbath reminders just kind of sandwiched between these two descriptions of all the tabernacle details. Well, it's a reminder of the goal of tabernacle, a new creation, because Sabbath represents new creation time. It speaks of that seventh-day realm of rest without end because the work is done. So Sabbath is that zone in which our lives are willingly handed over to God. And, and so within the context of making a place for God among us, Sabbath becomes the question of, can I stop? Can I let go? Can I trust him with what's left undone? Even when our work is good, even when the work can be categorized as tabernacle building, we still have the requirement of Sabbath because there is a way to go about seeking new creation that's not God-reliant and is not living in his timing. It's self-driven. It, it doesn't really understand what it's trying to make because it can't even rest in him right now. So there's a way in which our service in the church, it, it could be restless or self-reliant or anxious and hurried. And that is not how we're meant to give back to God. Because our denial of the concept of Sabbath, the, the timing of God's presence, it's a denial of the very reality that we're supposedly building, a home for his presence with us. So we have that hint, that first hint of new creation time is in play here. The structure of the tabernacle itself also represents a new creation because it makes possible heaven on earth. It's both a kind of return to Eden and it's also kind of a fast forward glimpse of the consummation of all things. So remember we talked about how the Ark of the Covenant was considered the very footstool of the throne of God. And this shows us that new creation is a place where God reigns. And we know that the church right now is a place where God reigns. We saw that the table in the holy place with the bread of presence that shows us that new creation is a place where God will eat with his people. 
That same sort of fellowship that God and humanity have that we, we saw back in chapter 24. We saw a glimpse of that when the elders went up on the mountain. But we know that this same new creation reality of feasting in the presence of God is also prefigured for us as we eat God's meal from the communion table. The lampstand in the holy place of the tabernacle, we talked about how that represents the tree of life, but it also shows us that the new creation coming is a place where we receive life from God. And right now, the church is the place where people can find life in Christ who has called himself the light of the world and has called his church a city on the hill that cannot be hidden. Then there's the tablets of the law within the Ark of the Covenant. They show that uh, new creation is a place in which everything that exists will be ordered rightly. And the church right now is where creation is being reordered through the teaching of God's revealed word. The tabernacle priest shows us that new creation will be a place where we come into God's holy presence. And of course, we know that through Christ, our high priest, we have access to God's presence even now. Remember how we had those dimensions of the holy of holies given as a cube, 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. And then with Solomon's temple, the dimensions grow. It's 20 by 20 by 20, but it's still a cube. These are the only two places in scripture where a cube is used until we get to Revelation where we're told that the dimensions of the city of God coming down out of heaven, it's it's a cube. Because in the new creation, the Holy of Holies has broken out and it's expanding to envelop everything. And the implication is that right now, through the church, the zone of God's presence is expanding. It's no longer contained to a secretive room. It's an ever-growing realm in which any of the people of God can freely enter. So this is the fulfillment of Eden where Adam and Eve were told in essence to make the whole world a garden full of the image of God. And that expansion is happening even now through the church as people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are brought into God's ever-expanding tent. The new creation theme is really hit home in the last section of chapter 39. Uh, the Hebrew word choice of, of verse 43 is meant to remind us of Genesis 1.31. So in, that, in Genesis 1.31, at creation, we're told God inspected all that he had made, and it was very good. And then what's followed three verses later is God's blessing. And similarly here, as the tabernacle is completed, we're told Moses inspected the work that they saw and, and, and he inspected the work and saw that they had made it just as the Lord had commanded. And then immediately Moses blesses them. And so also we too, as we build for God's glory in our day, we know that uh, we serve in a, in a way that there's going to be an inspection at, of the work. And for those who have been faithful, their efforts will be blessed. So does it make you any more excited to serve the church knowing that Your efforts are being woven into God's building of a new creation in which we will all dwell with him forever. I hope so. Whenever church feels redundant or disappointing, let's just take a step back and remember the big picture here that God is using this tabernacle project to create for himself a home among us. And so the implications couldn't be weightier. And even the... The aspects of church life that can seem mundane, those are connected to the most majestic of realities. So it should be shocking to us that 
that there's, there's this new creation coming that we, we are witnessing even now. But then it's even more shocking that our gifts are used to bring it about. That's our second point, that the free gifts of God's people are used to form a new creation. And when we speak about God's people freely offering themselves, you know, their goods, their services to, to God's construction project, it's a lot different than when secular people just freely give to some sort of general charity, like um, United Way, for example. And the difference is this, that Christians give out of a consciousness that actually we owe God everything. We realize that, that of course, God should have from us anything he likes because it's all from him. When David was making preparations for the temple that was going to be built after he died and he, he had gathered all this stuff in preparation, in First Chronicles 29 he said, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O oh Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. We can ask ourselves, who are we today that we should even have the opportunity to give willingly to God? If it weren't for him, we would have nothing to give. We give freely, but it's out of this consciousness that rightfully our everything already belongs to him. And the Exodus account gets after that dynamic in chapter 30. We had skipped over this little section about the census tax, but basically they count the people who are 20 years old or over, and they all have to give half a shekel of silver toward the future construction and service of the tabernacle. And everyone, rich or poor, you give exactly the same amount because it represents the atonement for their very lives. It's, it's a symbolic gesture. They said, we owe God everything. And so we all give something that represents our personhood uh, to the project of having God dwell among us. And then in chapter 38, all that silver is melted down to form bases for the curtains that would make up the walls of the tabernacle. So one commentator explains, um, by the Lord's will, our primary use of the fruits of redemption is to engage in those acts which secure his presence among us. So why, why are we saved? Why do we have the fruits of redemption? It's so that we can give it back to him to, to secure his presence among us. If there were no tabernacle, there would be no indwelling. So is this optional? Yes and no. They had to decide if they wanted the Lord among them or not. And the same dynamic is true for us in, in how we do or do not devote ourselves to God to you. Is it optional? Sure. If you don't prize God's presence among us, but when we truly grasp how he's redeemed us and when we clearly see all that it means for him to dwell among us, like what Christian wouldn't get excited about giving anything at all because everything we have is from him and for him and to him. Another Old Testament scholar writes that a habitat for God's holiness will never be constructed by self-made persons but only by those who are continually moved by the extraordinary gift of new life. So if you have a posture of, uh, well, what's, what's, what's reasonable to, to be asked of me? 
or if you think, oh, I, I could spare this or that, or you think, I, I think I'm doing more than other people, if you have that sort of mindset, then you're, you're not really going to play much of a role in creating a habitat for God's holiness among us because you're too infatuated with what you feel you've built or are building for yourself. And that's why in chapters 35 to 39, the main emphasis is on the voluntary nature of these gifts. It's repeated over and over and over. Chapter uh, chapter 35, verse 5, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And then down in, in verse 21, we read, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all of its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. In the rest of the chapter, we see this enthusiastic voluntary giving included people bringing materials of yarn or linen or goat hair, ram skins, silver, bronze, gold, wood, um, including giving their labor freely, woodworking, producing cloth. Others in the community open their treasure chests. They're giving gems and spices and oil. And verse 29 stresses that this was a free will offering to the Lord by those whose hearts had moved them. And the response was immediate. And the response was overwhelming. In fact, down in verse 36, verse 7, we see that the people had to be restrained from giving any more. One more example of generosity. Chapter 38, verse 8. It says that the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze were made from the mirrors of the women who served in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, in those days, mirrors weren't made of glass. They were, they were just polished bronze, shiny metal that you'd look in. And so I think this is a beautiful picture of how potentially our vanity could keep us from giving freely, right? I mean, we don't, we don't give mirrors these days. But, you know, we do give resources that maybe we would rather spend on grooming our own image. But these brave women aren't thinking first about their image or looking attractive or poised or refined to the world around them. They're just thinking of serving God, even if their appearance suffers for it. I think that's, that's just a beautiful example of this free will giving. But it wasn't just money and resources that were given, right? And some of us might, in fact, find it quite easy to just kind of write a check and forget it. I think that's because the most precious commodity in our culture is actually our time. Uh, it's, it could be easy to give stuff, but to, to give time, to invest your labor and attention somewhere rather than where you want to spend your attention. That is the bigger sacrifice in our culture. And we see here that they gave both materials and labor. It's a reminder to us we can't just dedicate our wealth. We have to dedicate our whole selves to God. And the actual construction of this tabernacle is very human work. It had to be done by people with their hands, and it had to be done well. I think that that need is beautiful because we're all differently created. We're all differently gifted. We have many ways we can give. And many competencies are called for in this work that aren't religious in nature, right? And in this text, we see that God certainly gives some experts to help us who can lead us in certain efforts that are needed. And I think the same is true in any local church. I think about Mark Wheaton with his skills, like with any sort of material. 
Uh, I think about Jim Rollins and the ease with which he produces a meal for a whole room full of people. So God gives us what and who we need when we need them in order to do the job well. But we also need to see that this isn't just the work of professionals. In chapter 35, it's added that God had given both Bezalel and Aholiab the ability to teach others. And the same is going to be true in any local church. Not everyone is going to be an expert in the area of service that's most needed at that time. I don't know how many people would say they're necessarily an expert in the education of children, and yet it's a desperate need for us to teach our children, um, teach our children about God every Sunday morning. Um, so it's a question of, you know, we'd all maybe prefer, like, I, I want to serve in a way where I'm an expert. Okay, that's, that's very American of us. But what are you going to do? Are you going to stand around and you're going to wait until the church can appreciate your gifts as you see them and give you the opportunity you've been waiting for? You know, is it, like, maybe you're like, well, God gifted me to direct a bell choir. Sorry, we're probably not going to have that in our midst anytime soon. So are you going to humble yourself and learn from a Bezalel or a Holiab how to serve in the areas that actually are needed right now in the work that God is doing in our midst? Now, why would these people give so generously? The generosity is just emphasized again and again. People who had so little, people who are wandering in the wilderness— well, of course, the text says they had generous hearts and willing spirits, but why might that have been the case? First, I, I think it, it would have been a response to, to the wonder of their liberation, right? For 400 years, the Israelites had lived as slaves in the land of idolatry. This book started with them crying out to God for deliverance. And now they're free, and they're being led home. How could their hearts not overflow with gratitude? It was fitting, given the lavish nature of what they'd received from God. They'd, he'd given them deliverance. He'd sustained them and guided them and protected them in the wilderness. He'd given them revelation of himself at Sinai. So there's the wonder and gratitude to motivate their generosity. Also, they might have given out of repentance. And, and I, don't, I don't mean that they were in any way trying to win back God's favor. They had God's favor because of Moses' intercession. But Israel had done a horrible thing. They'd sought an experience of the divine in a wrong way, and they'd created an image of God to their own liking. They'd rejected relationship with the God as he actually was, and instead they pursued false worship. And the realization of that, when it really sunk in, it must have been devastating for them. That the God of life had made himself available, and then they had rejected him he could have left them on that path of death that they had chosen for themselves, but he didn't. So now, what does living a life of repentance look like? You can imagine that they would have been zealous to do the right things. They would want to obey urgently and, and freely, and they'd want to put those results of God's mercy in their lives on full display for others to see. The Israelites may also have been giving from their possessions and their work as a kind of defiance against the wilderness, right? They were in the middle of a pretty bleak pe uh, place. This land, you know, they're, they're moving around. There's dirt everywhere. There's, you know, they, they don't, they're not able to express the arts like they might have wanted to or to enjoy lasting fruits of their labor. It, it feels like everything is transient. But in the midst, in, into that situation, God now invites them to build something beautiful, 
and something lasting. But most of all, I think their giving was motivated because of excitement, out of the, the joyful anticipation of God's presence dwelling among them. And we too can tap into all of these motivations for generosity. We've been rescued out of slavery to sin, redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb, brought through the waters of baptism. We are being guided and protected and nourished in the wilderness. So gratitude and awe should abound. And when we feel most out of place in this world, it's good and proper for us to throw ourselves into the work of ministry, showing through our actions that we still know and believe God is gathering and building up his church for a lasting new reality. There's, there's a, a defiance in, in the way we're going about pursuing new creation. No, this isn't all there is in this old broken world. We're going to build something beautiful. And we should take that role of service seriously because we're also sobered by the fact that we have pursued fake gods. We have readily worshipped empty objects and that almost brought us to ruin. But God, being rich in mercy, is committed to washing us clean from our idolatry and so really there is no thought more exciting than the one of actually dwelling in his presence forever. So how could we not get behind that project which is playing out right now in your local church. So when we see giving of ourselves to God in these ways, when we, we view it through these lenses, we're operating from a completely different worldview from how the world thinks. Because the world gives, their giving is motivated by fear, fear of um, being perceived a certain way. Um, and their giving can end in selfishness. It's, it's to amass glory for themselves. Um, but instead, we, in our giving, we are motivated by gratitude, and that ends in generosity. Now, if we stopped here, just saying that a new creation is being built through our free gifts, we might be tempted to develop kind of a humanistic view of what we're about as a church. It's just sort of, uh, let's all pitch in, and it takes a village kind of mindset. And if that's what this project of church is based on, well, that's going to fall apart pretty quickly. But instead, let's notice another essential emphasis of these chapters, and that's that it's the Spirit of God who is ultimately doing this. It is God who is shaping a new creation through our gifts and our efforts. So it's, it's all his doing. This project exists only because he has called and authorized and equipped and inspired us. We can particularly see God's authorship of the tabernacle in two ways. One is that it is God who gave the people these skills to do this work. It was the Spirit of God who enabled it. So if this is really an act of new creation, we would expect, just like in Genesis 1, we would expect the Spirit to be hovering over the waters. And that's exactly what we see back in Exodus 31. God said he would particularly fill with his Spirit Bezalel, the son of Uri, and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach. I always have trouble with that name. So the Spirit is active over the chaos, and he's going to create something beautiful and lasting. And that filling of the Spirit is described within these two artisans, that they're given ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, in carving wood, to work in every craft. And we might think that, well, if the Spirit of God is particularly working through people, it, it must look very religious in nature, like a prophet or a priest. 
But here we see that even the very physical work of their hands is enabled by God. Their ability to teach others was a divine gift too. They are uncommonly skilled, greatly motivated, and that is all the work of God in their lives. So this has huge ramifications for how we think about our work each day, whether you're lifting a baby or a shovel, whether you're writing a song or a computer program, whether you're cleaning a toilet or a wound. For the Christian, all work is sacred work. In the very beginning, God presents himself as a gardener. In the incarnation, Jesus came as a carpenter. The Apostle Paul sewed tents. Peter was a fisherman. When the gospel changed the lives of soldiers and cloth merchants and jailers and tanners and government officials, none of them were told to drop those occupations. Rather, God wraps it all into how his living temple is being built. So one can imagine maybe Bezalel and Aholiab as kids They're just kind of picking up a knack for this or that craft. They're taking a strange interest in in some creative work, and then suddenly it's gone way past anything their their parents ever would have pursued or or achieved. And that's the start of this trajectory that then God is going to use at such a time as this. And God has us all on trajectories that serve his new creation project in ways that we never could have anticipated. None of our experiences are wasted. And just because it's work that seems normal, that doesn't mean that it's not from his hand. He enables the work that he requires. Well, secondly, we know that it's ultimately God's work because for the work to be done properly, the word of God must be obeyed. The word of God had to be obeyed. That's another emphasis of this passage and the repetition. Seven times in chapter 39, it's repeated that something was constructed, quote, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Just, it's like a refrain. And you see that word-for-word repetition that we talked about it from those earlier chapters to these later chapters. All these details. Why is it repeated word-for-word? To emphasize that it was the same, that it was done exactly as it was commanded and with this mantra as the Lord had commanded Moses that it's just like God said to the letter so it was done and the book of Hebrews tells us that this exactitude of see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain that's because the tabernacle was this was a copy of grander realities so that's why God is the architect and the construction manager for his own house If any home for the holy is going to be viable, it has to be. It must always be God's own plan. And that's what Moses had to ensure. And this is also what your elders have to ensure. We don't worship God in just any way that feels right to us. That's that's the golden calf mistake. We're always tempted to create a God to our own liking. But God himself tells us what he's like and how he must be worshipped. And he gives us instructions in his word for how we're to approach him and what sort of home we are building for him in our midst. And so your pastors will bear the responsibility if we get that pattern wrong. And that responsibility is not light. So I hope you'll trust us and you'll follow us when... We say occasionally, no, we need to adjust the way we're doing things for this or that scriptural reason. Every church initiative, every mode of worship should periodically come under scrutiny. There's no sacred cows. 
we have to seriously ask whether this has any sanction from the Bible. So this section of Exodus is reinforcing that the Lord is to be worshipped only as he directs and he allows. Notice that Moses and Aaron, they're not among the builders of the tabernacle. I mean, maybe they, they pitched in a hand here or there, but Moses' role is just to unpack what God has clearly said and then to get himself out of the way. And similarly, we see in the New Testament, the role of elders is to equip for the work of ministry that the rest of the church can then do. So we've seen that building a place for God's presence among his people, this work is ultimately God's work. It requires both his word and his enabling. And we've seen that he uses the free and glad and generous gifts of his people, both the contribution of our resources and our actual time and labor. And we've seen that this work of ministry that every Christian is woven into, it's not something trivial. It's not something like like we're just putting on these little gatherings out of a, a sense of tradition or ritual or something quaint that makes us feel secure. No. We're enlisted in the workforce of the new creation. Do you ever wonder what your pastors are thinking when they see you serving well in, in different ways? What am I thinking when I see you serving in, in various capacities? Awe. That's what I am feeling most weeks. When I hear someone, whether they're up here or, or not, singing like they believe it, I feel awe when I don't notice AV at all because they excel so much in their hidden tasks, I feel awe. When we connect over a great effort of snack mavenry or when people are greeted and and welcomed in a way that's genuine and observant, I feel awe. But it doesn't even have to be one of those roles that we specifically recruit for here. If I see someone downstairs stopping to pray for a brother or sister, I feel awe. When two people are gathered around another, reminding them of truth, and the result is that they're all crying together, I feel awe when I hear of how you serve each other's practical needs in times of vulnerability. I'm in awe. When I see your initiative to put yourselves out there and to speak of Christ to your family and friends, I am in awe, and my faith is strengthened, and I see that God really is building his dwelling among us. And it's glorious, and I can't wait to see in the years ahead how each of us will give more and more freely and gladly toward that project with our whole lives to the point where I'll have to hold you back because we're overflowing with much more than enough. So let's pray to that end. God, uh, we thank you for we thank you for the tabernacle that you had the thought to put this in history thousands of years before us so that we could see what it's like when you are at work in our midst creating a dwelling for yourself. Lord, I pray that we would take these lessons to heart and that we would, we would never um, underestimate what you're doing in our midst that we would always be amazed that our free gifts get to be a part of it and that we would see your fingerprints over everything, even our own contributions. So Lord, do that work in us. Continue to build us up. Make us 
a fitting home for the holy. In Christ's name, amen.